they asked me again this week, Greg, if I was going to sing. I think we've already crossed that bridge once. And I really don't think I want to try to follow up on what you and Haley just did with, with my pitiful attempt. So we're just going to we're just going to get in the Word of God this morning. I appreciate you so much in being here. Appreciate Greg and those that serve with him, and you men that take take up the offering and Mark for helping us out with the technical side and hitting record every single Sunday morning. And I appreciate you all for being here this morning. I realize that some of you. We are your church home already, and I realize that some of you are here because of a special event or because of um, just an opportunity to come, and regardless of why you're here, we are grateful that you are here. And on behalf of the First Baptist Church of Wilson, I just want to say thank you for being here this morning, and I hope that when you're here, you feel welcome, and I hope that when you're here, you feel like we're a family, and that's what we seek to be. So I am so grateful that you're here. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, so if you have a Bible that you can open up or that you can turn on, I would invite you to find your way there to Malachi chapter 2, and if not, then I'd invite you to just come and we get around and we study God's Word together. And so Malachi chapter 2, when you came in, um, you might have caught a bulletin on the back of that. There'll be some notes. The notes will also be behind me on the screen. If you just want to follow along as we study God's Word together, I just want you and I to come around God's Word and to study what God's Word has to say to us. And so the way we do it is we look and say, What does God's word say? And then we ask the question, okay, so then what does that mean for us today? But the year, let me take you back a few days. The year was 1911. Henry was in line to register for his senior year of college. Back in those days, before the electronics and all of that things, the, the freshmen would line up, the sophomores would line up, the juniors would line up, the seniors would line up, and Henry was in line um, to register for his senior year of classes, and he could see off to his left, he could see all of the, the freshmen that were lined up, all of the incoming freshmen, and he saw specifically on the incoming freshman boys, he, he saw their clothing. Some of it was too small, some of it didn't fit just right, some of it was dirty, awkward fitting. He could see their haircuts that obviously mother did at home because they couldn't afford the the barbershops and to go into town. He saw their mannerisms and the way they composed themselves, how they were shy and they're a little bit awkward and they weren't really sure how to navigate all of the newness of the college atmosphere and the big city life. And as he's watching these incoming freshmen, it makes him think back to 1909 when he also was that incoming freshman standing in the line registering for classes at Washington and Lee University there in Lexington, Virginia. And it made him think back to how unprepared he was that freshman year for what lied ahead. You see, Henry grew up in Bland County, Virginia. It is the probably the most remote, most least populated county in all of Virginia. It's one of just a few counties in the entire nation that doesn't have one single incorporated municipality. In fact, if you come from Bland County, Virginia, you don't say that I'm from X and X or X and such city or for such and such town. You say that I am from the village of. And in that community, the Appalachian Trail traversed its ridges and its valleys Most of the people in that community were either farmers or keepers of livestock. And to say that that was a rural background and to say that Henry was coming from a rural background was indeed an understatement. So standing there in that senior line, Henry is looking at those incoming freshmen. He's remembering what it was like in 1909 when he was a freshman, learning how to do it. And especially he remembered the ridicule that those upperclassmen gave him as being some just rural hick off of the farm. 
And Henry had a thought. Henry said to himself, what if I could do something to help better prepare those young ladies and young women for the future that lay in store for them? And right there in that line, ready to register for his senior year of classes, he made a decision that he was going to do something with his life that would change the future of theirs. He saw their condition, and he was willing to act. Malachi chapter 2, God is looking down upon a people. He is looking upon a people that he had called to themselves the nation of Israel. And as we come into the Old Testament setting, God is speaking in an Old Testament way to an Old Testament people. So as we come in the New Testament setting, we don't come in expecting that God is saying everything to us, but we do come in and understand there is principles and precepts that we can then take and apply to our life today. So as we come into Malachi chapter two, God is looking upon a people, a people that had just come out of exile. He's looking at a people that are, to put it nicely, dysfunctional. They were dysfunctional, In their life, they were dysfunctional in their culture. They were dysfunctional in their society. They were dysfunctional in their spiritual life. They were dysfunctional all over the place. And so God comes through the mouth and through the pen of Malachi, and he has a message to his people, and he comes in and he says, this is what I see, and this is what I see that needs to be corrected. The year was 460 B.C., God then takes Malachi. He says, I have a message for you. And that is where we get the book of Malachi from. God seeing a need and wanting to address it with his people. So we have looked through in the previous Sundays, if you haven't been here, we've looked through the previous pages of Malachi and how Malachi addresses not only the way we live, but the way we talk. He addresses what we do. And this morning in this text that we're going to look at today, we're going to be at the last end of verse two, or chapter two and starting in chapter three, but he is going to talk about how we respond. Your response matters, and our response in this society matters. So what we're going to do this morning is I just got two truths that I want to share with you out of the text this morning, some truths about how we view today, some truths that are about today based upon what Malachi says. So when you come to this passage, God is speaking to Malachi to speak to the people about what he sees in them and through them. So start in verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2. If you read along as I read aloud, I just want you to hear the, how he sets up the stage. Malachi comes to this text and he is always doing this he said, she said thing. If you're listening to a conversation, Malachi is saying, God says this, but you say this. God says this, but you say this. And this back and forth. He picks this same discourse back up in verse 17 and he says you. He's talking to the people, the people, the Israelite people that are there. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, the people are responding back to God and saying, how? But you say, how have we wearied him? Answer, by saying everyone who does evil is, but everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? He sets the stage right here at the very beginning by showing the problem at hand. The problem at hand was the definition of sin Injustice. You think that we're living in a day and age that this is the first time that anybody has ever dealt with a definition of sin or that anybody has ever dealt with this concept or this definition of justice. This was happening far, far before you were ever thought about. This question of how do we define sin and how do we define justice? 
So those are the two questions that are on the table. These are the two questions that people are wrangling with. And God comes in to say, you've got your direction all wrong. You've got your perspective all wrong. You've got the questions all wrong. This isn't a question of the definition of sin and justice. This is, the, this is a question of the definition of truth and light. So God comes in through the pen of Malachi and he is addressing the people and he is saying, you are wrestling with all of these questions. It makes me think back to the British thinker, Theo Hobbes from several decades ago. And in writing to talk about what it takes to see a moral revolution, he said there are three things necessary to see a moral revolution take place in a society. The first thing is that what, what was once condemned is now celebrated. The second thing is that what was once celebrated is condemned. Did I say that already? It's two components. What was condemned is now celebrated. What was celebrated is now condemned. And the third necessary component is if you do not celebrate, you will be condemned. Regardless of your age this morning, so many of us are sitting in that scenario right now. We are facing a culture and we are facing a society and we are asking the question, what is the definition of sin and what is the definition of justice? And these two components will seek to brawl us in and to see us get fixated and all concerned with these two problems at hand and we can miss the bigger picture of what God is doing in our lives. We get so consumed with the idolatry of man that we miss the worship of God. I'm going to assume this morning that you come in and you've got your own bag of problems. I'm going to assume you come in and you've got your own things that you worry about. You've got your own things that trouble you. You've got your own things that are consuming your thoughts. Even right now, as you are looking at me, your mind is maybe elsewhere thinking about this problem and thinking about this situation, thinking about what you're going to have to lunch, thinking about when you're going to get out of here. You're going to think about all of these things that consume our hearts and mind. But when was the last time that you and I sat down and actually thought, what is God doing? Well, Malachi comes in in chapter 3 and verse 1, and this is where we really get to the heart of our response. And so this was the problem that the people were had. This is the plight. This was the concern. This was their complaint. And God comes in and responds to the people on where they are at. He says in chapter one or chapter three, and he starts in verse one, and he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will set his refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. You may read that or you may hear me read that and you may say, what in the world is going on? He is speaking to the nation of Israel and he's reminding them, you're looking around and you're seeing the dysfunction in your culture. You're seeing the troubles and the trials in the society and you run around and you're seeing evil triumph. You're seeing bad be celebrated. You're seeing all of these things break down and you are sitting there going, oh my goodness, the sky is falling and you're missing what God is doing. He wants to remind them that even in the day in which they're in, God is molding and making. And church, I want to remind you this morning that it doesn't matter where you are at in your life. It doesn't matter about your perspective. It doesn't matter about what you are facing. God is molding and making you today. 
So there's a question that came up. The question was, well, what do we do about this idea of sin? What do we do about this idea of evil? What do we do about what is going on today? Have you ever wondered why it seems like the bad guy is always prospering? The bad guy is always getting ahead, and you and I may, may echo the sentiment of my three-year-old son when we say, that isn't fair. You ever say that? Us adults need to be doing this. We're doing it all the time. Well, we don't like that. That's not fair. We don't agree with that. But what Malachi wants to remind us, because what God is telling him is, is our fairness is often limited to our experience and wisdom. What we consider to be fair is based upon everything that we know, but there's some things that God knows that we don't know. And so God comes to the pen of Malachi, and he says, I am sending my messenger. You may look in that right there in verse 1, and you may say, who is the messenger? Well, if you were to translate the word messenger in the original language, it's the word Malachi. It's like God is saying, I am sending Malachi, my prophet, to be a messenger to tell you, you don't have to flip out. You don't have to lose your mind. You don't have to think that everything is out of control. You can understand that there is still a God, and he is still in control. God is still in the making business. God is still in the molding business. But let's not get distracted thinking that God has lost his edge. So he says there in verse one, I am sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Then he goes on, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. Then he talks about another messenger there in verse one. He's talking about these people that have come before. You think about all the way from Abraham to Moses to the promised land, all of these people that have come before to say, make ready the Messiah is coming. So he says these things that God is doing, you may not see him. You may interpret them as a blimp. You may interpret them as what is God doing. You may come with all kinds of questions and you may start to have doubts, but do not worry, church. God has not forgotten you. That's the essence. That's the sentiment of what he is expressing right there in verse one and verse two. He says, God has not forgotten you. The Jewish nation, the Israelites, they were sitting there and they were seeing all of the dysfunction. They were seeing all of the disarray. They are seeing all the negative all around them and they are wondering, what is going on around here? How can this take place? And God comes and speaks to Malachi and says, don't, don't, don't buy into the idea that God has forgotten you. The concept of deism, a philosophy, an idea that has not new to this generation. It's been around as long as religion has been around, but deism, the idea is that there is a God and he created everything that we know and then he just walked away. He took his hands off of it and whatever happens is what happens. Thomas Jefferson is accused of being a, a, a famous deist, but the idea that there is a God, he's just not in control and he just doesn't have any power to do anything about what is happening is a lie. Just because does, God doesn't operate on my terms of fairness and God just doesn't operate on your terms of fairness doesn't mean that God isn't God. I mean, I think it's quite unfair that God would make me so much better looking than Evan Green. But Evan Green seems to take it well. You know, sometimes our definition of fairness or what we think is right or wrong is not based upon our attitude and our opinions, but it's based upon what God does. So he goes on there, and, the, and I, I, always, I always say i got to hurry and I always take forever. But he goes on there, and he talks, in, in verse 3 and 4, he, he gives us some analogy. He talks about the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. So some of you that, that may not understand what he's saying, I, I want to give you a picture of it. 
The fuller's soap, a fuller was somebody that mixed with, messed with clothing. It was somebody that dealt with the washing of the clothes or the making of the garments. And the soap was just like we think of today, of laundry detergent. It was a, it was a heavy, high uh, amount of lye that was in it, but that fuller would take that clothing that would have all the soils and have the dirt and would have the impurities, and he would take that soap and he would put it in that wash tub and he would mix the water and the soap and the, and the dirty and the soil clothes together and he would take them out and on the washboard or on the rocks or somehow he had a way of beating those clothes and rinsing the fabric until he could get the dirt and the impurities and all the things that were contaminating the clothes clean. The imagery is even better when it talks about the refiner's fire. He talks about the silver and he talks about the one that sets over the fire. They would, they would mine the ore. They would mine the metal and to, to purify it or to clean it, they would take all the metal and they would put it in a cauldron. And they would heat the cauldron up. And as the temperature began to rise, that metal would start to melt. And as that metal melted, the impurities, the things that contaminate it, the things that make it dirty, the things that keep it from being pure, the things that keep it from being clean, they would begin to rise to the top. And so the refiner would sit there with a, with a scooping tool and he would help scoop the dross. He would help clean those impurities off. It is held down through tradition that the refiner would sit there and he would continue to clean and he would continue to scoop until he could see himself in the reflection in the metal. He knew when it was good and pure enough when he could see, that, could see himself in that which he was refining. So what does that mean for us then? Well, Malachi is telling the people that what God is doing is God is doing a work in our lives because God sees and God knows what we can be. So God looks at us and he sees us in a broken state. He sees us in a dysfunctional state. He sees us in a sinful state and God sees who we are, but God sees who we can be. He realizes that today you look in the mirror and all you see is you now. Do you realize that God sees who you were, what you are, and what you will be? Do you realize that God sees 20 years from now, God sees 25 years from now? If you had asked me 20 years ago, would I be standing right here talking to you? No. But God sees, and God knows. And God is looking there to the people through the eyes of Malachi and he is saying, what I am doing right now is I am molding and I am making a people. I am molding and making a people, what for? So that they might be righteous in the Lord. That is verse three. Then that therefore their offerings and their spiritual lives and their blessings before me and the way they live and they, what they do, they would be acceptable to the Lord. They will be acceptable and pleasing to me, verse four. He is saying, what I am doing is I am doing all of these things, all of these trials, all of these struggles, all of these temptations, all of these hardships, all of these things that you look at and go, it's just not fair. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. It's not fair. He is saying, I am using these things to do a mighty work in your life. And you have no idea what I'm preparing you for. Think about an athlete. He takes those players, makes them run, makes them lift weights, makes them run drills, makes them do all these exercises. It takes work, it takes sacrifice, it's costly to the player, but he knows the reason I'm doing this is because I'm building endurance, because I'm building an ability, I'm building a muscle memory. I'm doing this so that I can be a better player when game time is there. Maybe God is coming to some of you and he's using the scenarios and the difficulties in your life to grow your faith and your dependency upon him so that when other people around you face the bad doctor's office 
and they face the unwanted news and they face the unexpected hardship, someone around them, a stronger brother or sister in the faith can be there to say, I have seen the darkness of the night and God is still good. I've seen the trouble of man and God is still good. The Bible teaches us very clearly that God, when he created the world, he created with a design and a plan in mind. And because of the fallenness of man, because of the sin of man, that has become broken. Our, we have been become broken in our sin, and the brokenness of our sin then is manifested, manifested and demonstrated in a, in a variety of ways. And so we have a lot of people today that are walking around and they have questions about their identity. They have questions about morality. They're having questions about behavior. They're having questions about what is right and what is wrong. They're having questions about what is true and what is not. All of these questions and sometimes, sometimes it is a manifestation or a demonstration of the brokenness and the sin in their life. And God comes in through the story of Jesus Christ and says, I have seen you where you are at, but I know where you can be. So that's why over 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ was born as a baby, lived a perfect life, was crucified on a cross, not for any guilt or sin or wrongdoing that he had done, but because he was taking the penalty that I deserved. He was buried in a tomb. He rose on the third day, and now he is standing at the right hand of the, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession to me. And the gospel story tells us that if we believe in who Jesus is and we understand the, the depth, we understand the danger, we understand the issue of our sin and the issue of our brokenness, we can cry out and be saved. Malachi reminds the people of what God is doing right now as God is molding and making the people. Now I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at my, I, I look at scripture, I just look at my life and I say, well, then why the process? Why the journey? Why couldn't it be that when God saves me, I go to heaven? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> get saved, go straight to heaven. Why do I got to get saved and then go through the muck and the mire of trying to be a good Christian, trying to do the things I'm supposed to do, keeping my mouth shut, keep biting my tongue, being nice to people, being patient, being long-suffering. Why can't I just become a Christian and boom, go to heaven? Because I'm not God. And it's not my design. Malachi comes into the people and says, you don't understand that God is molding and making you and that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Henry, did finish school. Later on, he went to earn a master's degree from Virginia Tech. He then pursued a vocation in a field of discipline where he could, could then educate and prepare the rural students of Virginia. And in 1925, he was at a meeting with three other men by the name of Edmund McGill, Walter Newman, and Harry Sanders. And at this meeting, these four men decided that there was a need. There was a need to create an organization. An organization for the students they were educating. And so these four men decided, well, Henry, you know, this is kind of something that's been on your heart. This is something that you have been really wanting to do. So Henry, we're going to task you with bringing in all the bylaws, the constitutions, proposing a curriculum, putting together the entire organization. Henry said, fine, great, I will do it. Two months later, he's admitted to John Hopkins Hospital. 
for an unexpected illness. You ever find yourself there? Saying, God, I'm willing to serve. God, I'm willing to follow. And then tragedy strikes. And you wonder where God's at. Malachi then turns in chapter 3 and verse 5. And he explains that not just that God is molding and making, but God is preparing and promising. He says these things that are taking place around you and these things that you're wondering about what in the world that God is doing not only understand what God is doing in your life as he's, is he's molding you into the image of what he wants you to be. He's, he's making your life what he desires from you. But he also goes in, he says he is preparing and promising you for what is to come. In verse 5, he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. This is God speaking to his people. God speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. The reality is, is that whether you like it or not, the Bible tells us, the Bible says that every person in this room will one day answer to God. Where do you get that from, Spence? Hebrews 9 and 27. And it is appointed man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. He reminds that every single one of us will give an account to God. And so he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. And what is this judgment? He says in verse 5, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the um, those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, if you go back up there and he talks about in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, by saying everyone who does evil in this evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He is saying, I'm going to come and all that evilness and all that sin and all that brokenness, I will come and judge it accordingly. People of Malachi's time are saying, oh, no, 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 we got the judgment handled. And God says, no, you don't understand what judgment looks like. He says, I'm preparing you and I'm promising that this is what's going to take place. God is going to come. And when God comes, he will judge man. Every single person will answer to God. And he wants to remind them that when he comes, when he comes and he comes in judgment, he is going to hold all of us to an account. Well, Spence, I'm saved. So therefore, I am not in line for that judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 and 11 tells us that all of us Christians will stand before the beam of seat of Christ. It's, it's the judgment seat of Christ. And every one of us will stand before Christ, and the question will not be heaven or hell. The question will be, what do we do with the gift that God had given us? What do we do with the word that God had given us? What are we going to do with the, the ministry and the purpose that God had given us to live? Every single person is going to give an account to God. If you're here this morning, when that moment comes and you stand before God and you've never repented and confessed your sins before God and cried out to be forgiven of your sins, the Bible says that you're going to hell. We're living in a day and age that that's not very loving, Spence. That's not very kind, Spence. How can you tell that to people? How, how can you be so insensitive? I'm not being insensitive. I want to tell you the truth. If you were heading towards the edge of a cliff at a high rate of speed, would you not want me to tell you there's a cliff coming? Stop! If your house was on fire in the middle of the night and you were asleep in the bed, would you not want me to wake you up to tell you you're in danger? The most unloving thing we can do is not to tell people 
the danger of sin and the future of sin. The most unloving thing we can do as people of God is to watch people in their lostness or in their depravity or in their brokenness and not say something to them. So the Bible tells us those that have never trusted and received Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in hell. Now I realize that you're looking around and you're going, well, you know, I think I'm better than so-and-so. I'm better than Van. <laughs> Van can get in, I can get in. All I, it was just a competition. It's not a competition. It's a matter of the condition of your heart. And the reality is that God knows your heart. See, you look there in the language of chapter 3 and verse 5. He says, I will be a swift witness against and he starts giving this list of who he's going to be a swift witness against. It's not the fact that he's going to come in and he's going to say, everybody that is an idolater, raise your hand, and those he's going to judge. It's not that he's coming in and he's going to say, everybody that has ever said a cuss word, raise your hand. Everybody that has sinned against me. No, when God comes, God knows the condition of your heart. So it's not a matter of, well, I've gone to church and I own a Bible and I'm, I, I'm a member of a church and I've done more good than bad and I've done all of this and I tried and I heard the right things and I've been there and I've been present. It's not a matter of all the things the perfunctory things you've done to be seen or to be heard, it's going to be the condition of your heart. I would sit there in those speech contests before H and FFA, and you would see those people that would get up and they had their speech memorized word for word, but they didn't have any heart. So their speech was perfect, their presentation flat. And so many of us Christians are walking around. And so many of us that call ourselves Christians are running around. And we know all the right words. We know when to stand up. We know when to sit down. We know when we come in. We know the right things to say when other people are around. We know the right things to say when other people are listening. But the reality is, is our heart is cold because it's never been transformed by the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And young people, one of the greatest dangers you have in the world that you're living in right now is the hypocrisy of those around you and the temptation to think that as long as you look the part and talk the part and say the part, that's being the part. And God doesn't look at your outward appearance. God isn't concerned with what you are when other people are watching. God is concerned with your heart. And God tells them there in verse 5 that he is preparing them. He is preparing them for this judgment. And he is promising them. He is promising us, church, that he is going to come and he will hold us accountable because God knows our heart. And when that time comes, all sin will be held accountable. There's not a, well, a white sin or a brown sin or a blue sin or a red sin. It's all sin will be held accountable. And the question will be, who's paying for your sin? Did Jesus pay for your sin on the cross over 2,000 years ago? Are you going to pay for your sin for an eternity in hell? He says, I want to prepare them. I want them to know that despite what obstacles they may have or what struggles they may have, I'm preparing and promising that this moment is coming. So what do we say? Let me take you finally back to Henry. Henry had this dream. He had this idea. He got with three other colleagues, and they said, let's do it. And then he finds himself for over six months 
admitted to a hospital. And then he spent an even longer period of time that in his home on, on convalescent leave. But when he was able to return there to Virginia Tech and return to these other three men, he'd used that time that other people may say, oh, poor Henry, he's stuck in the hospital. Oh, poor Henry, he's stuck in bed. Oh, poor Henry, he can't do anything productive. He used that time to do all the crafting, the writing, and the dreaming, the molding, the making, the preparing, so that when he came back to his vocation, when he came back to his education, he had a plan, he had a vision, he had a proposal, he had a curriculum, and they quickly implemented it. And in fact, they implemented it as a tool to train and equip the young men and the young women there in Virginia. And it took off. It, it was very effective. and It was training them on, on that local level. And so the national level then picked it up and said, no, 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 we, we need to employ this curriculum in our classroom. And so then in, uh, in 1928, the program was taken was taken nationwide. And what began as the future farmers of Virginia, when it went nationally, became the future farmers of America. And what started as one man looking at another man in the line in a class registration has ended with hundreds and thousands or even more of young men and women being prepared and educated and trained to live the life that God has in front of them. And my question is, if Henry Grossclose can have such an impact and be such an influence in this organization known as FFA, what is our influence and our impact going to be in this community in Wellston? So many times we sit back and we think, well, I'm just one person. I'm just one voice. I can't do anything. I have no power. I have no recognition. I have no platform. I'm just one person. One person can't do anything. And so we use that, that lie from Satan to just sit back and say, so I'm not going to do anything. And yet Mr. Grossclose had a burning and a conviction because he saw a need. And he did something about it. Church, I wonder what excuse we're going to have when we stand before God one day and we see the need around us. We see the need for hope. We see the need for help. We see the need for truth. We, need to, we see the need for light. And yet, we do not do anything about it. So how should we respond? Just three quick ways at the bottom of your notes. We'll be done. Just how should we respond? So Malachi comes in. <coughs> And he's looking at these people and he's saying, I understand the situation. I understand what you're, the, the surroundings. I understand what you're facing. But you know what? God is doing something. God is molding and making a people for his plan and his purpose. God is preparing and God is promising these people that there is a day coming when all of that sin, all of that sickness, all of that brokenness will be dealt with. And God is telling them, hey, this is coming. Have faith. Hold on. I am not done. So then how do they respond? Then how do we respond as a church? Three things. First is to fear God. To fear God. Fear God. Why should I fear God? Because you're going to give an account to God? Because God made you? Because God made everything that we know? Because God is holy? Because we are not? Because God is righteous? Because we are not? Because God sent his son to die for us and we did not? Because God is God? We should fear God. And not in a, ooh, scary, let me run away and bite my fingernails kind of thing, but in a reverence and an awe. I 
want to make sure that what I'm doing in my life today will be held accountable for my God tomorrow. We have too much of a lack of fear of God in this world. We're teaching our young people not to fear or respect adults, and then we wonder why they don't fear or respect God. We have too many adults running around here that do not fear or respect authority, and they're teaching their children not to have fear and respect for other authorities, and we wonder why we have such a problem with criminal activities and such a problem when it comes to our schools and our societies because we have adults that are teaching children and modeling for children a lack of fear and a reverence and an awe for the authorities that God has put in their life, and we wonder where this is headed. I'm going to tell you, not anywhere good. Just because the world is doing that doesn't mean you have to do that. We fear God. Not just that we fear God, but we trust God. We trust God. We trust that God has a design. God has a plan. God has a purpose for our lives. And we trust that God is doing something. Even when we don't understand it, we trust in God. You may say, well, Spence, how in the world can you put all of this faith and this trust in this God person? Because I believe it. Well, can you touch him? No. Have you heard him audibly, personally? No. So how do you know he exists? This is me. Because there'd be no reason for me to be here doing what I'm doing if he didn't exist. And without him and his truth via his revealed word to us, I have no hope and no help in this world. So you're telling me I'm going to live to an average span these days of 76. It's between 75 and seven, or 75 and 80 is the average lifespan for men and women today. Men are right around the 76 range. You're meaning that I'm going to be come on this earth and I'm going to live for 76 years. And after that, I've got nothing to hope for. I've got no help. I've got nothing. So why do anything? It is all hopeless, helpless, in vanity, and pointless without God. And let's say, let's say you say, You have your belief, I'll have mine. What's the worst that can happen? I live a good moral life. I respect and love my neighbor. I'm kind and patient, long-suffering. Just a nice person. That's a good person to be around. But I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God that God has a plan and God has a design. And because I fear God and because I trust God, here comes the last one. I'm going to submit to God. I'm going to submit to God. Because I fear God and I trust God, I will submit to God. It is a walking contradiction when you have a person that says, I fear God and I trust God. I'm just not willing to submit to God. Now, my question for you this morning where we're going to head to in a moment in a time of invitation is I'm going to ask you where you're at. Where are you at in these three? You can say, well, well, I, I, I fear God. I fear God. But do you trust God? Do you trust God with your tomorrow? The first question is, do you fear God? Do you fear God because you know that God exists and that God has created you and God has created you with a plan and a purpose and one day you're going to give an account to God and you're going to answer for the life that God has given you? That's the fear question. But the question then is the trust question. So you say, okay, I understand that God has created me with a plan and a purpose and a design and I'm going to give an account to God one day. Then the question is, do I trust God that God can handle my tomorrow and so I don't have to freak out and have the control I don't have to have all the answers I can just say God I'm going to trust you and I'm going to follow you 
Some of you may be at the fear point, but you've never gotten to the trust point. You may be at the fear point that you recognize and you admit that God exists, but you've never gotten to the point that you say, God, I'll handle your tomorrows. Or God, I'll let you handle my tomorrows. Maybe you've never gotten to the trust point. And then this last one, maybe you've never gotten to the submission point. You're like, God, I, I, I know who you are, and God, I fear you. Oh, God, I'll be, I'll be faithful. I'll go to church on Sunday, but I'm not giving up that vice. I'm not giving up that hobby. I'm not giving up that relationship. I'm not giving up that priority. I wonder where you're at this morning. Henry Gross Close is considered the father of the FFA. A man that has had an immeasurable amount of influence and impact in so many. He's not even alive still. Passed away some years ago. When someone tells your story in the days to come, what kind of impact and influence will you leave behind? Bow your heads with me.